Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. We have covered several stories from the American West, and most recently we've covered the trials of George Armstrong Custer. We are today going to be returning back to the summer of 1876 when Custer made his so-called last stand at the Little Bighorn. But in an effort to further contextualize the West and the outset of the Gilded Age, I'm speaking with Chris Wimmer, the creator, host, and lead writer of Legends of the Old West, a long-form narrative podcast that tells true stories of the American West. And during the summer of 1876, the transformation of the West and of the frontier was on full display. The outlaw heroes that you know today were coalescing on the plains, as were the lawmen. But Chris is keen to juxtapose the search for order in the West with the search for a similar kind of order in the East and the rise of things like organized sports. So the summer of 1876 is not a parochial one with just gunslingers and Indian wars. It's a multifaceted story about East and West. Chris has a master's degree in journalism from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University and has won numerous local, state, and national awards for his writing. His book, The Summer of 1876, is his first, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. I, I've got to start with a question about why, right? Um, so the book is called The Summer of 1876. Why study a year and why study a season within a year? Uh, it's, I, let me try to make it a short answer, if at all possible. I need to get better at soundbite answers. I'm not the greatest at these, so we'll see if I can pull it off. It, it, the, the idea came out of the, the podcast that I created and produced, Legends of the Old West, and it, it really was just an epiphany essentially, when I was doing research for all these different big stories from the Old West, I eventually realized that lots of them happened in a very short space of time. Um, There were some huge events that all happened in the summer of 1876, uh, which I I picked several of them to really highlight and go deeper with in the book. And that was really all it was. It was just simple. It was doing the research and the writing for the podcast led me to this epiphany that lots of these things overlapped and were happening at the same time and try to imagine what it would have been like to have been alive at that time and been reading the newspapers, especially depending on where you were located in the country, you know, you got different kinds of coverage. And I, the example I typically use is if you were a newspaper reader in Missouri 
in the summer of 1876, you were reading about all the big national stories of the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the political campaigns that were going on that summer, leading to a very crazy um, presidential fight in the fall. But you were also reading about Jesse James robberies that other other states might not have been focusing on. And you probably got a little bit of news about uh, Wild Bill Hickok up in Deadwood and this crazy mining town and everything that was happening there. So depending on where you were living, your newspaper just would have been wild with all kinds of different crazy stories. And so it was it was an opportunity to do something outside of the um, the podcast world that I thought would be interesting because I'd already done. I had already done most of these stories in podcast form or knew that I was going to do them. So it didn't make sense to do them all over again as one big epic podcast series. And I just met several people who were in the publishing industry and I thought, ah, this, this could be really interesting. Let me try to turn this into a book. And it was, it really ended up being a, a really crazy step-by-step process as to how it ended up happening. I think it's great because I think we forget sometimes how much happens and those layers, as you say, you know, the overlapping things that are happening at any given time. I mean, I've read several books about a given year, um, 1492, 1968. Uh, I've rarely read books about a season and how condensed 1876 is, is remarkable. I think the big story obviously is about George Armstrong Custer. Um, I should say we've recently talked to TJ Stiles about his biography of Custer, um, Custer's Trials. And I think what I came away from that was thinking uh, historical figures really do kind of belong to us, that we really are the agents of their memory. And so I wanted to ask you, what does Custer's story mean to you and for your interpretation of the American experience? Because I think to some people it'll mean one thing. I think to other people it can mean another. And I just wonder for you as a, as a podcaster and historian, what, what did you make of it? Oh my gosh, that's that's a really good question and one I've never been asked. And so now I'm going to have to vamp, as they say in the news business, and see if see if my brain can can run fast enough to figure out a good answer. I think the first things that I would reach for, and I and I certainly I, I need to qualify this by saying certainly I've never written a biography of Custer like T.J. Styles or anyone else. I've never done a deep dive into his entire life, so I wouldn't proclaim to ever really know the man in depth. My my area of study is far more in his military life and very specifically what happened after the civil war, his, his rise to what was called at the time, America's number one Indian fighter. And then that kind of, you know, what was it about a a four to to six to eight year period where he was, yeah, he was considered that, you know, the number one Indian fighter in the West for his work on the Southern Plains and then the Northern Plains. And so the things I gravitate toward immediately are the things that I both took for granted and wasn't sure if they were how much truth was in them, this, this stereotypical things you hear about Custer of being arrogant and a kind of a blowhard and, and being very self-serving and, uh, and, and disregarding military principles and all these different kinds of things that you read about. And I thought, I, I don't know how much of that is true, but if it's written about over and over and over again, it probably has some truth to it. I find it hard to believe that all these other really respected authors got it wrong. All of them. Um, but doing my own research, I, I came to that conclusion too. I thought, yeah, it, it was this emergence of the kind, it, it was an early emergence, I think, of, of an odd kind of celebrity culture to where he was so famous and so popular and loved the fame and notoriety of being this Indian fighter that it fueled his tendencies, I believe. 
that he had these natural tendencies to freelance and basically do whatever he wants. And because he was one of those incredibly lucky guys for a long time where it always just worked out for him, no matter the chances he took, the what seemingly in hindsight were bad decisions he made, they always worked out, which just kept becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. He just kept doing them and pushing the envelope further and further and believing in his own invincibility and his own um, maybe destiny that it would just work out. If he made a certain call, it would just work out in his favor because it always had before. And he he built this celebrity and this fame around himself and loved that idea. He was a guy who recruited newspaper reporters to come with him on his on his expeditions. He made sure there were always people there to chronicle his every step and every word. And he fed that notoriety. And then, of course, he finally hit that wall. He hit the the one time where the decisions he made did not work out in his favor. And ultimately, they worked out in the worst possible way. It does seem like 1876 for Custer is that the terminus. Yeah, it's, if, it, if it wasn't going to be his death, the little bighorn, it would have been his financial ruin or his political ruin, or it was all your, I think you, you, you put that nicely that it was all sort of coming to a head. It was his comeuppance. Um, I suppose on the flip side, if we, if we talk about, um, you know, we're going to talk about sports too. In sports, you can always talk about in two ways. You can talk about uh, one team beating the other team or one team, you know, failing to, or sort of beating themselves in a way. Right. Um, and in a way, it seems like the Little Bighorn and the Indian Wars of the late 19th century, this is a, um, a sort of worst case scenario of army miscommunication and coordinated Native American resistance, which wasn't always the case, certainly wasn't the case in the, the lower plains. Um, and your book sort of foreshadows the ultimate end of Custer quite nicely. It does seem as though these sort of forces of ineptitude and uh, an overstretch kind of come together here. And I was just wondering, do you think that's a fair assessment of this summer, of this this part of the summer? Yeah, it is. This this is, I won't go too deep into this. Maybe we'll touch on it another question. I could, I could go in a whole bunch of different directions, but this is one of the things I found really fascinating about this summer. The overarching, maybe thematic is possibly the right word, but the overarching, it's one of the overarching interests was that that this summer really was a blend of the new and the old. This this was the year that there was a whole different world happening on the east in the eastern United States. This, you know, typically previously 10 years earlier, the nation had been divided north and south during the Civil War. By this point in American history, the nation is really divided east and west. There's a whole different world developing on the East Coast with the more populated cities and the industry and the sports that are happening. And the West is a whole different side of things. It's completely different. And so it, it in and of itself was just such a different realm from what people in the East were experiencing. And then when you start adding in the things that had never really happened before to lead to the events like the Battle of the Little Bighorn, like you were just saying, it was a perfect storm. If you've ever read the book or watched the movie, The Perfect Storm, the, about the, the three major storms on the East Coast that united to the, uh, in the, in the late 1990s, Sebastian Younger's book um, was really good about that. And of course, if you've seen the, the George Clooney, Mark, Mark Wahlberg movie, it, this was kind of like that. It was a series of things that all built up over time and all converged in one small place. And if they had not happened in exactly the right order, those events arguably wouldn't have happened. I mean, that's the great game you can play is if you take this one piece out of the puzzle, what would have happened? How would it have changed history? And some of those things were what you just listed there, where, you know, the, this Native American, from the U.S. Army's point of, point of view, they wanted to 
go all out after the Native American tribes of the West and force them all onto reservations. Well, the first step of that process happened in March of 1876, but it didn't really go all that well, and there was no follow-up on it. So it ended up being this lightning rod for the Native American tribes to coalesce around and unite in numbers that had never been seen before. So that one event went from A to B to C to D to E, and you can trace it throughout that, that summer and see how it evolved and affected and how the tribes all banded together and their numbers grew. And eventually it led to this perfect storm of terrible communication on the army's part when they finally did get the big campaign going. And then the largest native American society ever recorded in the American West. Um, They're on a very small little river in Southern Montana. And so it was, and that's the kind of stuff that I've really, I was really interested in. And, and I, I hope it, I hope it's understandable and hope it's interesting to people who read the book because I, I never know with things like this, if I'm just this weirdo who loves these, these, how it all happened and the deep backstory of one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And if certain things hadn't happened, the ultimate result that we know of today never would have happened, or maybe it would, you know, that's the guessing game that we talked about a second ago. Well, I like the way you you put the theme of the book is new and old. I was going to go in a different direction, but I'm going to talk about baseball because I'm a big baseball fan. And one of the things about the book that I really liked is that this is not a Western nonfiction book. It is not that it's not parochial. It's about the East Coast. It's about New York City. It's also about the formation of the baseball league. Two words, baseball, base and ball. Right. It's not yet combined into one and the formation of the National League. Um, I was going to ask you, I want to ask you two questions about this. Let me get the first one off and then I'll come to the second. But the first one is, who are the people that are behind the movement to organize baseball? Oh, man. OK, I should I should also qualify this answer with I'm not a baseball historian, but I had to read a little bit about this for a, a project that I did early in my podcast career about the 1919 White Sox, uh, the, the classic Black Sox, uh, the infamous baseball uh, World Series betting scandal. Um, and so the 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 driving force behind the creation of the National League were, I believe, at the time, the eight owners of the clubs that eventually banded together to form the National League. The guys who owned those clubs had all been had all had their clubs in various other versions of professional baseball leagues or what could have maybe been called semi-professional or non-professional. There's, I don't know what you really call the teams before there was the first official professional association of baseball players, but whatever they were. Um, those guys had kept their teams alive in one form or another. And eventually when the, when the earliest version of a professional league collapsed, these eight guys got together and said, we basically said, we need to do this for real. Here are the things we need to accomplish to, to start our own professional baseball league and hopefully keep it going. And they certainly went through their own trials and tribulations after they started, which I touched on a little bit in the book. It's not like they started the national league in February, 1876, and it was just perfect and off to the races. And it was golden from that point forward. It was very messy for a long time, but that was the, that was the genesis that these eight guys um, had all had professional baseball teams before, and they banded together to start a new league with the hope that this would be the one to stand the test of time. And it turned out that they were correct. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One of the trials and tribulations that they have is that uh, two teams are expelled from the National League at the end of the year, which you point out in your book. I'm not going to lie. I love the idea of relegation. I've been living on the other side of the pond for quite a while. I watch soccer. And if you, you know, if you fail to succeed in the given year, you're sent down to the lower league. And part of me would love to see some of the teams that have been languishing in, in baseball to, to get punished, to, you know, to drop down a league. But um, I think it's where, you know, we, we might uh, be able to kind of improve on the the finances of baseball, but if we get back to the theme about new versus old, I thought a lot about what you were talking about was about order too, that there was this kind of construction of order. And you talk about Sunday in America and that, you know, people weren't in 1876 going to watch baseball games on a Sunday, that actually society wasn't quite ordered the same way it is now. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about society in the summer of 1876 and what an average person in various parts of the country might be doing on it any given Sunday. Yeah. And that's it. And it's to, to piggyback off your last, your last quote there. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, uh, I grew up playing soccer and, or football is where, where, as they would call it, where you are. Um, and so, yeah, I, I am always, I'm a longtime fan of the English premier league and I'm starting to branch out into maybe the Scottish premier league and the Irish premier league to start broadening my horizons a little bit. So yeah. And as a longtime lover of American college football as well, relegation has been, has been a topic that comes up every few years. Chris, can I just suggest if you are thinking about broadening your high horizons, don't look to Scotland and Ireland there there's Italy, Germany, Spain. Yeah. Oh no. I, yeah, I know. There, there's basically in, in the Scottish Premier League, you have the top two or three teams and there's right. a pretty big golf after that. Right. Um, but yeah, like it just, for what we have access to, I think the similar thing exists in Italy. There's a core group at the top, but then there's a pretty big gap. And if you look at the Spanish Premier League and, and the French League, it's almost the same thing. The, the English Premier League is definitely the deepest, uh, maybe with the, the Bundesliga as number two. But, you know, I think American college football ends up going the opposite direction every year. It just adds more teams to the league every single year. And you just see that gulf widen. Um, and so maybe they will get to a point where there's, 
some sort of super league type thing, which then might have a relegation system to continuously allow more people to jump in. But who knows? We'll see. Maybe baseball will adopt it. But I think at this point in our history, we're probably stuck with what we have. I think it's probably that level of change would be so mind blowing and catastrophic for the American uh, for the American brain. It just wouldn't happen anymore. Um, but uh, to go back to your to your original question about what was happening on any, any given Sunday in 1876 in America, as you mentioned, it certainly wasn't baseball. Baseball, baseball was outlawed until the early 1900s on a Sunday. Um, so it was it was typically your day of rest. I mean, that's, I think that's basically what it was. It was it, for people who could. Some people were still working seven days a week. And, you know, we this was long before um you know unions were really the the power that they are now and before there were work regulations and child labor laws and a lot of those things that really came with the fight to for unions and better wages and better work conditions and all those kinds of things we were just starting to see some of that in the late 1870s but it certainly was in its in its infancy so it was a lot of it was sunday was your day to relax from having worked 6 days a week uh and if you could enjoy your own there was no law against you playing your own game of baseball, but you just, the professional teams weren't allowed to play and you weren't allowed to go pay money to sit in a stadium. Um, so I think it really was just your, your one day to relax from having worked on the farm or having been on military duty or worked in a factory. If you were in the East and uh, worked on a ranch in the West, And as you mentioned, there were so many different things you could possibly do as our country was now fully united from coast to coast, but there was such a huge gap in the living conditions and the industries that were available from place to place. It was almost like three or four different countries that occupied the same landmass. I still wonder, is it sometimes having traveled a lot of it in the last few weeks? Um, we, I, I want to move back to the West though, too. I could be very easily distracted by uh, social experiences and baseball and all that. Um, all right. Well, we might have to do a podcast on that at some stage as well, but um Bat Masterson is another name that resonates uh, in this book and obviously in American history as well. He joined the U.S. Army in pursuit of the Comanche on a punitive expedition uh, earlier in his life. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about who this Western icon is and, and how 1876 defined his life. Yeah, he had a really interesting story, especially early. Wow, God, I probably shouldn't even say that. He had a, he's one of those remarkable people who seems to have been everywhere and done everything which is how some TV shows about his life or making him the main character have developed over the years. But he was one of those guys who grew up mostly on a farm in, or on a farm in Kansas. And when he got to that crucial age of 17, 18 years old, like many young men did of that era, he badly wanted to get away and see the rest of the world. And so that need to get away from the family farm in Kansas ended up leading him on this crazy journey throughout the West of being a Buffalo hunter and then going on, Buffalo expedition, Buffalo hunting expeditions that ended up, ended up getting him caught in a huge battle with the, the last gasp of Comanche warrior society down in the panhandle of Texas, which then naturally evolved into joining the military for your punitive addition, punitive action against the, the Comanche and the Kiowa who he had just survived a battle against, and then eventually leading him to becoming a war hero because that, that mission to just go fight and kill as, command, as many Comanche and Kiowa warriors as possible, ended up turning into a rescue expedition. So the military column rescued several captives who had been captured from Kansas. And so he ends up becoming a war hero. So he just, 
He's a young guy who wants to break away from the family farm. He goes into this wild experience of buffalo hunting. He gets into a battle with the Comanches, which leads to joining the army column as a scout and leads to becoming a war hero as he rescues captives. And it's just, that's a crazy early time until he's probably 22 years old. All of this has happened before he's 22, 23 years old. And, and then his life takes a whole different turn and becomes a whole new chapter as the Bat Masterson, the lawman that we think of when you think of the old west when he gets he gets recruited by a friend his friend Wyatt Earp um, who everyone suspects he met he Bat Masterson met Wyatt while they were buffalo hunters there's you know there's no written record of when exactly these two guys met but it was almost certainly while buffalo hunting in the southern plains and so Wyatt gets a job as a as a lawman in Dodge City Kansas and so he recruits some of his buddies and Bat Masterson is one of the first who is recovering at that point from a gunshot wound sustained in a, in a spur of the moment gunfight in a tiny little village in the panhandle of Texas. And so it just, it leads to bat becoming this all-star lawman for several years before he then gets tired of getting shot at and, and having to fight crime and wants to go seek riches in the gold fields of Colorado. And then he ultimately ends up becoming a sports writer in New York city. It's just, it's just the, it's one of those lives that, may be possible today for a person to do that many different things um but it it also may not be it's very possible that that was a unique era where you could do so many different types of things most of which i mean we're not talking literally you can't go be a buffalo hunter today but if you were to try to put together a series of totally unrelated things and see if you could do them all in a lifetime in a lifetime the way he did them and to the to the level that he did them it would be very difficult but he was one of those guys who pulled it off. And that was an era when you could be a guy like Bat Masterson and do everything. Amazing. And um, Dodge City seems to be such an interesting place as well. You mentioned Wyatt Earp, obviously, there becomes the uh, the, the sheriff. And it, I suppose it's getting when he's there, it's getting a reputation for becoming a, a violent frontier town. How, how is it that Masterson and Wyatt Earp attempt to quell the violence in Dodge City? Well, the first thing it was it was primarily Wyatt's responsibility. You're right. The first two years that Dodge City was, let's call it an official town, you know, grew up out of becoming a buffalo hunting camp. But as the railroad worked itself west across Kansas and each new big stop on the railroad became a new hub for Texas cattle drives coming up from the south, Dodge City was naturally the next hub on the western line. So it was going to become the next hub for Texas cattle drives. That's just how the process had worked. So everybody knew that the cattle were coming and these waves and waves of cowboys were coming. It was starting to happen slowly over the early 1870s as the town grew up out of a buffalo camp and officially became incorporated and made it and put itself on the map. But it was very violent and chaotic in those first couple of years before the first huge cattle drives arrived. And there were there were lots of murders. They couldn't, the town couldn't keep lawmen in town to save its life or keep them alive. They were, they were often killed or run out of town. So by the time it was clear that 1876 was going to be the first major cattle season, the city fathers needed to hire a whole new crop of lawmen. And they started basically with Wyatt. There was already uh, a marshal in place in town, but he was in an internal battle with some of the city fathers. So the mayor ended up hiring the assistant marshal, Wyatt, somewhat outside of the purview of the marshal himself. And so Wyatt was then charged with building a police force that was going to be tough, no nonsense, and just keep the, basically keep the level of violence down. This was going to be, oh, the town was going to be overwhelmed by Texas cowboys. It also wanted to grow and be more cosmopolitan. 
as you as you might remember from the movie Tombstone, when they had the exact same thing happen down there. And so they needed the town wanted to have some respectability, even as it welcomed this new huge source of income, which it knew would come with a whole new levels of violence. So Wyatt recruited guys that he knew were tough. He put a lot of guys on the payroll, and the same thing happened with the county sheriff's office. So the city marshal's office worked hand in hand with the county sheriff's office to create a kind of all-star team of lawmen who took no guff from everyone and, and put down some pretty serious rules and enforced them as hard as they possibly could without straying into the world of, of hopefully actual gunfights. It was basically done with fist fights and what they called buffaloing, where you'd bash a guy over the head with the butt of your pistol to knock him out and take him to jail to avoid a gunfight. Yeah, wild. And the the other confluence here of so you've got the confluence of lawmen, but uh, in these towns, but you also have outlaw heroes, probably unlike any other time in American history, maybe the 1920s and the likes of Al Capone and the uh, the organized criminals of, of that era can match it. But otherwise, we're talking about people like Jesse James and the, the James and Younger gang. Uh, who feature in your book, uh, Wild Bill Hickok in, in Deadwood and and others in Deadwood as well. But there's this, there seems to be, in a way, for as much move towards order, there's still a very disorderly group of outlaw heroes, right? Yeah, this is also arguably the peak of the outlaw era, of the Old West era. If you generally define the Old West era as 1865, the end of the Civil War, to 1900, then this year of 1876 is pretty much right in the middle of that time period. And it's also probably it, the, the it's getting close to the peak of the range of outlaws. You're about a year away from Billy the Kid establishing himself down in New Mexico and his crazy journey leading him into the outlaw life. But in 1876, the James Younger gang, led probably by Jesse James and Cole Younger, is at its, is at its peak. It's been operating for 10 years around the West there are lots of outlaw gangs operating all around the West. So even as places like Dodge City, as you mentioned, are trying to establish more law and order and similar types of things are happening in boom towns all over the West. And certainly any established city is really trying to crack down on the violence, specifically the gun violence, because there was so much available whiskey and everybody was armed and anything could trigger a gunfight at, at a moment's notice. So half of each town was scared uh, of the of the violence that could erupt at any point in time. And so they really wanted to hire lawmen to crack down on the gun violence, which was usually spurred by the excessive amounts of whiskey that was being consumed on a daily basis. And so you had both of those things happening where there were tons and tons of outlaws all over the West, but each city's trying to crack down on them. And it was really a battle back and forth to see which towns would have success over the outlaws or in Dodge City's case, it, you know, much more of just cowboys who'd been on the trail for months and were desperate for any kind of civilization and entertainment that, and anything that was not just smelling a herd of cattle on a dusty trail. So there was a lot of that ruck, raucous behavior that was needed in those, in those cattle towns too. But yeah, it, re it really was that it's one of those confluences, like you said, where you had kind of East and West in America doing two different things. You had law and order and outlawry uh, being two different things and kind of being at their peak. And at that peak would probably extend from about 1876 to early, early 1880s. Um, when you, by the time Jesse James actually eventually dies and Billy, the kid has gone through his life cycle and the gunfight at the okay corral has happened. There's probably about a six year period there, which is really the peak where both things were hammering away at each other, law and order and outlaws. 
and there was really no winner in terms. It was if you were going to call it anything, you'd call it a draw. Interesting. I think um, you're you know, you're talking about cowboys going from the um, from the the vastness of the plains to civilization. We actually drove through South Dakota and North Dakota this year, and we we went from uh, Dickinson, North Dakota, down to Custer State Park, and on the way we stopped at Deadwood. Well, after four and a half hours of driving through unending plains we got to deadwood and i was so delighted to see civilization i said to my wife and kids i'm like let's go let's go in everywhere let's go to all these shops and little did i know that deadwood is probably the sort of like trump maga capital of the west it's also got this lawlessness of uh you know that's sort of associated with the political right today and I just thought, well, it still kind of has that wild feel about it. People go there. They still go there for not not for civilization. Now they go there, actually, because it's it's out there in the middle of nowhere. And they, they sort of like that that isolated nature about it. It's still the frontier and it's kind of the frontier of politics and society. I don't know if that's a fair uh, statement to you, but um, it seems like Deadwood has that legacy from back in the 1870s to today. Yeah, Deadwood has had a has had a wild history straight through from its founding through the entire time period. It was one of the the last places, and they they have since created a uh, a museum to to honor this history in, in a really interesting way. But it was one of the last places to outlaw prostitution in the United States. So it was in the seventies and eighties. Prostitution was still legal in Deadwood, and there was a very interesting system for how it worked in Deadwood. So it evolved from this probably the craziest boomtown in the 1870s and totally lawless because it was an illegal town that should not have existed in that spot in America, that it couldn't have law. It was illegal. So there was no capability for law to then having eventually becoming an American town and having law and order, but also being probably the richest town in the United States, thanks to the largest gold mine in the Western hemisphere being located there. So it didn't really matter what you wanted to do in terms of law and order. There was so much money to be made there. People were going to get there and do whatever they want and do whatever they wanted to do and needed to do to make that money. The law and order was basically just going to have to hang on and just hope for the best and ride it out. And the, the, you know, the history transitioned into the 1920s and thirties and prostitution stayed alive there. And it had this really interesting history in the sixties, seventies and eighties. And then the town fell on hard times and reinvented itself as a as almost a miniature Las Vegas in the, in the Black Hills, where there's lots of casinos there now, which certainly some people who are, who are history lovers won't cotton to. They might find it a little bit weird and offensive that there's lots of casinos in a place like Deadwood. But it's a catch 22. It's, it's you know, you've got to that's how they the money that comes from the casinos helps funds the preservation of history in Deadwood. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to take the great steps that they do take to preserve the history so you got to have both you got to take the good with the seemingly bad if that's how you view it but well, it does bring it. I, it kind of it seems quite the continuity there actually in a lot of ways i mean it seems like that if anything deadwood understands its past as much as as anywhere that that, that although times change it seems still very much a frontier place on the fringes um not in the mainstream yeah, and the good thing about it is that even as they've had to embrace things like casinos and gambling to be able to raise the money to preserve the history, everything there is still themed from the Old West. It still ties back to its original history. All the casinos, all the hotels, everything is organized around Western history. So it really is this still this interesting frontier outpost that's hard to get to. But if you can get there, 
it's incredible. And I love going back there. I try to go back there every year when at all possible. And so they've really, I, they, I, I do take my hat off to them. They've really done a great job of blending the old and the new and keeping the history alive and doing whatever they need to, to embrace it. And it, they've done a phenomenal job there. It, it's, it's the only outpost of civilization within an hour, I think from there. So it's kind of, uh, yeah. And, and is... you can, when you, like you experienced, when you get there, it just kind of opens up in this valley. You you drive through these mountain passes and you get to this little gulch and it just opens up before you. And that's a little bit of what I assume the euphoria would have been for a Texas cowboy on the trail arriving at Dodge City that they have spent months going through literal no man's land. No civilization in sight, just dusty prairie and thousands of cattle. And then you can start seeing the little buildings of Dodge City on the horizon and it becomes almost like a mirage. But then when you get there, you just have to let loose. And that's why even when I read all these stories about how crazy Dodge City was, it's hard to blame the Texas Cowboys all that much. None of us alive today have any concept of what a trail drive at that time looked like and felt like. Even if you're a working cowboy in the West, you've never experienced anything like driving a herd of cattle from South Texas to South Kansas in the summer months and understanding what that would have been like. It just, it's not, it's not something we do anymore. So I try to give the Cowboys a little bit of slack when I when I read about them when they when they arrive in Dodge City because I probably would have done a lot of the same things. Fair enough, I I, I, I understand that. Um, I want to give you a chance to speak about well, we've been talking about Cowboys, so let's talk about the non-Cowboys. Let's talk about some of the female characters in the book. Um, you've got Agnes Hickok, Libby Custer, Zerelda James, and Calamity Jane, Jane to name a few. What do they bring to the story of not just the West, but the East as well? Yeah, and I, and I feel a little bad because I, I ended up shortchanging some of their stories. Um, it, it, as I had to, like everybody who writes a book, everybody who does anything has to prioritize what is this thing going to be about? And my driving principle for producing the podcast was to make it detailed and fun and, and action-oriented, basically. I, I guess I had to embrace the idea that if people are going to listen to relatively long stories about American history and old West history, they have to have a pretty decent level of action in them. They have to have a bit of a feel of an action movie, even if I don't really want to embrace that style. And so I, I quickly came to the conclusion that the, the podcast had to have that kind of action oriented underpinning. And so that's what I did with the book too. I wanted it to be hopefully a, just a nonstop. Once it gets started, it quickly moves from one thing to another, and you really never get a break. It's just go, 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 go. And so to that extent, I focused much more heavily on the battles and the outlaws and the and the lawmen and, and things like that, and ended up somewhat shortchanging the female characters who were incredibly important and had really interesting stories in their own right. Calamity Jane, of course, is the quintessential female character of the American West. Anyone who knows anything about the American West will immediately think of that name. Uh, and her life story, yeah, is is a whole other book. And that's why lots of books have been written about her, thank God, because she is almost maybe in a totally different way, but you could almost make the symmetry with her and, and Bat Masterson, that she did so many different things in her life that it's almost incredible that a person lived a life like that uh, and could have done all those different things and traveled to all those different places. And, you know, with her story, especially because so many, so much of it is, is poorly documented or simply wasn't documented. You got to take it all with a little bit of a grain of salt or a pinch of salt, maybe as they would say across the pond. Um, but even still, the stories are phenomenal. Even if every story she told about herself wasn't true, 
it's a fantastic story. And most of them weren't true. She embellished almost everything of her life. But every story she did tell about her life, from earning her nickname Calamity Jane to potentially saving the life of a of a army captain on the plains from being killed by Native American warriors, to having a romance with with uh, Wild Bill Hickok, almost all of it was fiction, or at least a tiny core of truth wrapped in lots of layers of fiction over the years. But it's still great stories. So even if you can't document how exactly through the letter she was uh, given the nickname Calamity Jane. The story that is out there is still pretty fun. So Calamity Jane is the big one. Um, Wild Bill Hickox, um, his wife, Agnes Lake, ran a circus, one of one of the biggest traveling circuses in the country, and I believe was the only female proprietor of a circus at the time. So she was a pioneer in a unique world that is hardly ever documented too. Crazy big traveling circuses. She was the, the cream of the crop in that world, and I barely got into that. Because the more I read about that, oh my God, yeah, I could devote whole chapters to this, but it's it it not none of it really fits with the the storylines, the overlapping storylines of the book. So I felt bad. I actually wrote a whole bunch of it and then just ended up cutting it out. Like I just can't I can't slow down the action narrative to take this kind of a detour, even though it really is interesting. So if anyone does get a chance to read about Agnes Lake, um, she had an incredible life too. Uh, and Jesse, Jesse James' wife is, you know, is, is a whole other story too. I mean, gosh, she ended up um, nursing him back to health after he was shot early in his life, um, and they ended up forming a bond while he's almost laying on his deathbed. And she she stays with him throughout his entire outlaw career, and so she's got a whole adventurous life on her own too that I just couldn't get into. And a lot of the a lot of the heavy lifting on that story does take place after the year eighteen seventy six. So it's not specifically in the purview of the book, or it happens before. It's the late 1860s. So by by 1876, her story has taken a little bit of a backseat to Jesse's story and what's about to happen in that summer of 1876. Uh, Chris, I should just say that I think you're maybe underselling your book a little bit. I mean, you you know, I know maybe you feel like you could have said more, but in, in many ways, all of these women feature, uh, in often cases, prominently. I mean, you talk about Libby Custer going back to Fort Lincoln and telling all of the wives of the soldiers that were lost, the little bighorn, you know, you mentioned, I forgot about Libby Custer. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> she but, probably mentioned her and then I totally forgot it was, I, I got off on a crazy rant. Oh yeah, I did. But I mean, I, I think, I think you're underselling actually what the book does. The book does feature a lot of these women and it does feature their stories. And although it mightn't go into the depths and plumb the depths that you think are reasonable, you know, it, it does, it does them as much of a service as it can with while keeping true to the, the themes and the trajectory of the book. So um I'll, oh, I'll thank pitch, you i'll pitch that for you okay uh, thank you i appreciate it and yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought up and reminded me of libby custer obviously uh, she's another great one uh as a person who really wrote the first draft of history for her husband the you know, she spent the rest of her life after her husband was killed really trying to maybe not refine her husband's image but maybe let's say define her husband's image define it as this heroic figure and then eventually, you know, history and more investigation chipped away at some of that marble um, figure that she had created. But um, she really became incredibly prominent after her husband's death. So I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for that. Well, I I'm glad you brought up the idea of truth in your sources. I think that's a really interesting vein just to, to think about 1876. You know, you mentioned Calamity Jane's sources. How much do we believe? How much do we discount? 
And I just wonder about all of all of the stuff that you cover. I mean, the Battle of Little Bighorn, for example, which you do cover in the book, there's no surviving testimonies from Custer's battalion. How do we recreate 1876 when there are so many elements that are either questionable, missing, or you know, historically lost? Oh man, it I would say it takes a long time. And I certainly I stood on the shoulders of giants for that one, to use that expression. Um, with a lot of that stuff, the um, there were there were authors who came long before I did who did a lot of the heavy lifting of of sifting through the original source material and the original courtroom testimonies and newspaper accounts to figure out fact from fiction. Um, and so I, I used their sources pretty heavily and then went supplemented with reviewing some of their source material on my own. But there were a lot of people who did a ton of work in previous generations to to start the process. And I think it really was only knowable through the uh through the generations i guess through in modern times and i guess i should say so the battle of the little bighorn specifically there was um there were court martials and trials that happened afterwards which provided us now a lot of the information we had from a soldier's point of view of what happened with the campaign overall and specifically with the battle of the little bighorn so luckily it was one of the few times when there was extensive courtroom testimony to provide firsthand accounts that could be compared against each other. And there were tons and tons of official reports written. So there was lots of documentation as well of news, as well as newspaper uh, dispatches that were sent back continuously. So we had this wealth of information that rarely exists in any other um, event in certainly the further back you go in American history. But then there's the native American side of the battle, which only started coming to the forefront in later generations as the 1800s progressed and into the 1900s. Um, and there were there were people who made a, an effort to go to the various Native American nations and interview whoever was left to get their story. And some of that process did happen fairly soon after the battle, but not to the extent that it did in the later 1800s and early 1900s and 1940s. So thanks to those that long effort, it was almost like, you know, almost 100 years of effort of trying to compile all of this so that we think we have the most comprehensive view of that battle. And even then, like you said, they're never, we're never going to know the full story because there are those soldiers who died with Custer who will never testify. And we only have Native American accounts for their part of the story or long distance accounts, guys who were stranded on the other side of a very huge battlefield and could somewhat see what they thought was happening with Custer's part of the battle. That's all we have. And so we're never really going to know. So there will be a permanent gap in knowledge for exactly what happened with Custer. And so at this point in time, we just have to qualify it and just basically say that we're never going to know exactly how that last piece of the Battle of the Little Bighorn happened, but we've got as close as we're probably ever going to get. All right, Chris, I've got one last question for you. When you wrote the title of your book, were you thinking about Brian Adams? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I think it was I think it was maybe more Bill Bryson. I think who who wrote the great book. I think it was called One Summer. About that was it, nineteen twenty seven, maybe. That's right, nineteen twenty seven. Um, he talks about baseball, okay, cool, well, Murderers Row, and all that. Yeah, I was about to say, as, as a person who loves baseball, I'm sure you loved that book. If, I'm assuming you read it, but even if you haven't, yeah, that was the the golden era of the Yankees. So of course you've probably read it and loved it. So it was that. But yes, great homage. I don't know. Until this moment, if I had put those two things together, was it the summer of 69, the Brian Adams song? It was, yeah, yep. Oh my God, it's possible that I've gone this long without having put that together. It's very possible that this is a historic moment on your podcast that 
somehow that had not clicked into place. I, I, I'm, I'm going to hold out like a 1% chance that at some point in the process, I did think of it, but it's certainly not at the forefront of my mind. Well, I think it's a wonderful book. I think it's a, it, it is a good read. I think what you were aiming for in terms of that action packed, you know, I, I blitzed through this and uh, enjoyed, enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for joining the show and and sharing your experiences. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to hear that you blitzed through it. That's what I'm hoping people will get from the book, that once you start reading it, hopefully it's really hard to put down and hopefully it moves fast. The last thing I wanted to write was a kind of tedious, deep dive tome about this era. It really is supposed to be geared toward seeing how these really crazy, mostly five big stories all overlap with each other and how fast those moved. So if that's how you read it, if that's how you felt afterwards, then I, I thank you. That's what I was hoping for. Mission accomplished. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.